You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. There are obvious hurdles to crossing the river of nicotine addiction. What are these, and how can we help ferry our patients across? Joining me today to discuss smoking cessation is Dr. Frank Leone, a pulmonologist and director of the Comprehensive Smoking Treatment Programs at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Leone, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Lee. Is our looking at nicotine as the addictive component of cigarettes the right thing for us to be focusing on? Oh, absolutely. We've known for a few decades that nicotine was the addictive component of tobacco in all of its forms. What we haven't really appreciated is the true nature of nicotine dependence and how strong nicotine dependence is compared to other substances of addiction. And is that something that develops right away when you start smoking or it takes a longer time to develop? Generally, it develops pretty quickly. Nicotine dependence is a function not just of genetics, what kind of infrastructure you inherit from your parents, but also of the nature of your exposure and, in fact, the timing of your exposure. You need to really be exposed to nicotine during a period of rapid CNS development. So typically adolescents who are just in the phase where they're beginning to experiment and express their independence and their adult decision-making capacity expose themselves at just the wrong time in CNS development, creating a brain or an infrastructure that is particularly prone to needing nicotine in order to function well. So these young people are really at their most vulnerable when they start experimenting with cigarettes. Exactly right. And is there a way to quantify how persuasive or addictive nicotine is? Well, animal models that have looked at the addictive potential of nicotine have used rodents, rats, and mice, and set them up in various paradigms of learning. So, for example, the nicotine has the ability to reinforce a lever-push behavior in animals just as easily as other more obviously reinforcing substances such as alcohol or heroin. The interesting thing about nicotine is that if you place a disincentive, such as an electric pad or something, in front of the lever, the rodents are more likely to give up alcohol and or heroin earlier Hmm. at less of a disincentive than they are to give up the nicotine. In fact, many of the nicotine-addicted rats will sustain lethal shocks to the pads in an attempt to get at that lever. So this is not just a matter of wanting to look cool, wanting to stay thin, ignorance of the health consequences. This is a powerful chemical driving force. Absolutely. Nicotine works by hijacking the survival instinct centers in the brain and compelling the person, the smoker, to behave, to seek out the cigarettes, despite the fact that the cognitive part of the brain might be saying, you know what? I don't think this is good for me. I really ought to stop. And so it's that irreconcilable conflict between the instinctive portion of the brain pushing the smoker to smoke just once more and the logical side of the brain saying, I wish I didn't have to smoke, that smokers then have to sort of deal with. And they deal with that by coming up with all kinds of reasons why they need to continue smoking. Stress, weight. Do you think the power of the addiction is widely appreciated by healthcare providers? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that we have been taught in the past that a measure of the strength of the addiction 
has to do with how violent or dramatic the withdrawal symptoms are. So if you think about it, we frequently think about heroin as very addictive because the withdrawal from heroin is very dramatic. There's seizures and dope sickness and all kinds of great things that happen when a person withdraws. But in fact, the power, the addictive potential, the ability to compel behavior has more to do with the subtlety of the withdrawal symptoms. So in other words, nicotine withdrawal has no seizures associated with it, has no vomiting. There's very little autonomic disturbance. What happens instead is that people feel a visceral, low-grade panic if they can't resolve that compulsion, if they can't get to their cigarette. And so what you'll frequently hear in your office is, yeah, yeah, I got to quit. I'm going to quit. I really, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. But when it finally comes down to that minute, that moment of putting the cigarettes down, it's very unnerving for the smoker, and they tend to postpone it, put it off, say, I'll do it, but I just can't do it right now. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and Dr. Frank Leone is with us discussing smoking cessation. He is the director of the Comprehensive Smoking Treatment Programs at the University of Pennsylvania. So, Dr. Leone, we have a very powerful chemical stimulus that would seem to me to lead to chemical treatments for this, and, and I know we do have some. Could you outline those for us? Sure. I think the main objective of treating patients with pharmacotherapy is to, in essence, really trick the brain into thinking that it's still smoking. A scientific way of thinking about it is, is give the smoker an opportunity, a mechanism to resolve that ambivalence, that nervousness, that low-grade panic that they may feel when they encounter a trigger, driving the telephone, boredom, a meal, whatever, and they don't want to allow themselves that cigarette. They need a mechanism for dealing with that low-grade panic. Mm-hmm. And so medications to help with this problem can be thought of in two main classes of drugs. There are the controller medications designed to help reduce the frequency and intensity of withdrawal symptoms, and there are reliever medications which can be thought of as helping the smoker to resolve that need, that craving. Controller medications, we'll start with the class of medications that are essentially around that work by replacing the levels of nicotine in the blood. The main controller is the nicotine patch. In general, you start off, just like in the asthma paradigm, you start off high, gain control, and then back off on the dose. And so typically, for the average smoker, the physician would prescribe a 21-milligram patch daily to try and reduce the frequency and intensity of cravings, and then allow that patient the opportunity to tell you when they're starting to feel better, when they're starting to feel in more control, and then back off on the dose accordingly. So you don't subscribe to a particular length of time at each level of the patch, really listen to your patient? Absolutely. I think you listen to your patient for two reasons. First, it's just better medicine. We have a much better relationship with our patients when they correctly identify us as being more concerned about their needs and their concerns than we are about the directions on the package. As long as it's safe and there's no downside to it, there's no reason to follow the directions on the package more closely than you follow the directions that your patient is giving you. The other side of that is that there's a lot of evidence that supports the notion 
that prolonged treatment improves prolonged cessation rates, and it's completely safe. You know, six weeks of treatment is good, 10 weeks of treatment is better, 24 weeks of treatment is better than that. And do you prefer the patch delivery system as opposed to gum or the inhaler with uh, nicotine replacement? The nicotine replacement products also come gum, lozenge, inhaler, comes as a nasal spray. Each of these has the ability to sort of resolve what's referred to as acute Q-induced cravings. The reason for that is the kinetics of delivery for those agents is a little bit faster, of course, than the sustained release patch. So, for example, the gum reaches its maximum level of nicotine within about 7 to 10 minutes after you use it, whereas the patch can take two hours to get to the maximum level of nicotine. So what patients generally do is I'll recommend that they'll put the patch on and then use some acute form of nicotine in order to relieve any cravings that come along because cravings are inevitable. We have to give them the opportunity to deal with that. Almost that asthma paradigm again, a controller and then a quick reliever. Absolutely. So if we help our patients understand that quitting is very important, but don't give them anything to resolve or deal with that panic that they're likely to feel, the question that's in their mind all the time is, well, what if? What if I need a cigarette and I can't have one? What do I do? We're best served in achieving our goals by answering that question and dealing with that question before they even ask it. So by prescribing a combination, say, for example, of the patch with the inhaler, we're telling them that we acknowledge the fact that there are going to be times when they would really like to have a cigarette. And what should they do about that? How do they handle that? Well, we give them instructions. Use your inhaler couple of puffs off the inhaler every hour as needed. And that gives them the message that there is, in fact, something active that they can do to relieve a craving rather than simply passively waiting for a craving to go away. That has to be so effective at reducing that panic and anxiety that you have described. Yeah, people need to feel like they can actively control what's about to happen to them. We all know that, you know, control is sort of a It's evasive sometimes. We can't guarantee control, but we can improve their chances of controlling what's happening to them if we give them the appropriate tools and the appropriate instructions. How about bupropion and Chantix? So the other class of medications that have been used are medications that work more downstream in the effect. So if you think about the effect of nicotine on the parts of the brain responsible for survival instincts, downstream from that, there's a significant dopamine release in the reward centers in the brain. And after years of using cigarettes, those reward centers, biology in those reward centers is disturbed. If I just sort of withdraw nicotine from you, those reward centers don't have the ability to sort of just kick it up and work normally just like that. So one thing that we can do is essentially pre-treat our patients with bupropion. It's marketed as Zyban or Wellbutrin. And the dose for that is 150 milligrams twice a day. The way to use that is to treat your patients for several weeks before asking them to put the cigarettes down. It takes about 14 days for that medication to reach its maximum effectiveness in the brain. So it doesn't make sense to 
to ask your patients to quit smoking before the medication has had a chance to really do its job. Get in there and bump up those dopamine levels. That's exactly right. And you know what's really a neat thing about both Zyban and Chantix is that you get to tell your patients, don't stop smoking just yet. And a smoker hears a doctor say, don't stop smoking just yet. This is an incredible sense of relief, incredible sort of joining experience. They see that you understand their perspective. Well, I want to thank Dr. Frank Leone, the director of the Comprehensive Smoking Treatment Programs at the University of Pennsylvania. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.